Are your finances actually resistant to censorship? And if so, well, how much? I live unbanked off of cryptocurrency, and I use BitRefill extensively because it lets me pay with crypto at places that don't yet accept it directly. This one service more than any other helps me live on crypto, pay your prepaid phone bill, or buy gift cards to thousands of major retailers around the world, all with cryptocurrency, including for exact amounts so you don't have to buy more gift credit than you need for a specific purchase. You can use BitRefill without an account, but if you get an account, you can earn rewards points, which translate to savings, and you can also hold a balance denominated in dollars or euros to protect yourself against market crashes. Go to bitrefill.com, click Create Account, and enter the referral code DCN, or follow the link in the description. Cryptocurrency and blockchain tech called censorship resistance. You hear that a whole lot. It's kind of confused with decentralization sometimes, but essentially censorship resistance means it's difficult, if not impossible or very close to impossible for whatever you do to be censored by some kind of outside party. Because we're initially talking about financial censorship and not speech censorship, basically it means no one can take your money from you no one can stop you from using it. That's kind of what it means. And a lot of blockchain technology is a little bit difficult or maybe even inefficient compared to a lot of more centralized systems of doing things. But the entire reason why we even have this stuff is because we want to be able to resist censorship. That's like the number one reason why everyone goes out of their way to build this entire incredible industry is to enable things that just wouldn't be enabled if you had to basically get someone's permission to do anything. Of course, there's a lot of other cool stuff going on, but that's the number one reason. I mean, no one was like, wow, I love this Bitcoin stuff. It works so well. I can't wait to put it in a centralized payment processor that gets to transfer it around. Like, no, the entire reason behind it is that people could not mess with it. They could not change it, block it, inflate its supply, all this kind of stuff. So that's the entire reason you're probably even watching this video is because you care about this concept of censorship resistance. There's two commonly conflated ideas here, which are decentralization and censorship resistance. Of course, they end up being hand in hand a whole lot of the time because structures that are decentralized by nature tend to be censorship resistant and vice versa. But it's not always the same thing. So consider this. What if instead of a few major banks you have hundreds, if not thousands of banks to choose from that will hold your money for you and process your transactions and things like that. Technically, this is a decentralized financial ecosystem, I guess, right? You have tons of options to choose from, right? If one bank doesn't serve your purposes, well, then you take your money and take it to another one. If this one doesn't want you to spend it on that, well, then you move to a different one. And then in that free market environment, you can basically do what you want. Is it censorship resistant, though? Uh, not Really, not the same way, because any one of these banks can still say, hey, we're not going to process your transaction or, hey, we're just going to confiscate all your money on behalf of the government. Sorry about that. Even though you have so many options to choose from, each one is still structured in a specific way so that you basically could still be censored, even if it's harder to have one entity sort of have control over you, there's still going to be bad things that can happen. On the other side of things, we have permissionless things, which are censorship resistant or whatever, which you don't necessarily need a party to be able to tell you what you can and can't do, even if you have tons of choices. And the ecosystem is very decentralized. So take a permissionless cryptocurrency, like a Bitcoin or one of those like that, 
and then you want to send and receive it and it, it works great. The way it's designed, it's not really easy to censor your transactions at all, to know who's behind them. It's pretty easy to run your own node, things like that. It's just a naturally very censorship resistant kind of a project. Now, unfortunately though, if you start to remove decentralization while keeping censorship resistance, you end up compromising censorship resistance anyway. Because what happens if one large mining pool controls 51% or more of the mining power on the network. At that point, even though it's a censorship resistant kind of a thing, the mining pool could still reverse transactions or refuse transactions or things like that. Even though it's harder to tell who they're from, they could still have blacklisted addresses. Or even if it's a system where that can't happen for whatever reason at all, you still have very specific choke points to attack. For example, Let's just say something is built on open source code that anyone can use and download and whatever. And so even though it's completely permissionless, what if there's only one person who knows how to do this? Only one person who develops on this, who can actually fix bugs and advance the code base and all that. And that person gets compromised, the only developer of this amazing financial system. If that person gets compromised, then all of a sudden they could start putting out malicious things into the code, which obviously if it's open source, you can catch those things, but some people might do it anyway. Or if they just start doing that, then all of a sudden the project kind of goes off the rails because, okay, well, you can't trust what this person's putting out, but they're the only person putting it out. And so if there's no other developers, no one else wants to develop on it, you're kind of stuck. You kind of can't really use it the way you want to. So if you have a decentralized development ecosystem where there's dozens of developers building on it, if one of them does something weird or gets compromised, then you're still okay. Let's take another hypothetical example. Imagine there is a coin that is a completely decentralized infrastructure, but every single account has a very specific username that is easily pretty identifiable. And every node processing transactions or whatever has an easy option of blacklisting people. If enough decide to blacklist you, then you can't use the network at all. In this situation, basically, even though it's decentralized, you could easily just run afoul of the system and be censored from it. It could be just enough people on it decide, hey, you know, I don't want this guy using it and you're completely shut out. So don't forget that just because it's decentralized doesn't mean it's censorship resistant. And just because it's censorship resistant, doesn't mean it's decentralized enough to remain censorship resistant. Why does it really matter though that you use something that's censorship resistant? I mean, if you're not doing anything wrong, what do you have to hide? Well, there's a whole lot of cases where you'd really want something that's not liable to be censored. And essentially, anytime you run afoul of the powers that be, whatever it is, for whatever reason, even differences of opinion, past social media posts, whatever the reason, it could be used against you in the future. Of course, with the winds of change being as they are, whoever ends up being in power could really change and their attitudes could really change. And it's not just, say, governmental power, but it's institutional power, even, you know, tech monopolies or whatever. And even if they don't shift around, their enemies might, and you could be collateral damage in that. And remember, the most important thing to you is, of course, your body, your personhood, your personal safety. If someone goes and hurts you personally, that's kind of it. But number two, of course, is finances slash resources, because what happens if you have control over your whole body, you're fine, but you just don't have any money or your money gets taken from you or your resources, you can't make any. If you are completely shut off like that, then you end up being in a really bad spot 
possibly starving to death, who knows, but that's a very serious thing that can happen, and that's, of course, one of the first things that people go to when they want to shut you down. Anytime a group or individual falls out of favor with the powers that be, financial censorship is one of the first things to happen. We've seen this happen recently with right-leaning voices, particularly preceding and following the latest U.S. election. Whether or not you agree with them, you should be concerned that this kind of financial censorship can happen to you, too. It's not just dissidents that get censored. The perfectly legal cannabis industry has struggled with banking since its inception, and the blockchain space has faced similar issues as well. Crypto personality Tiffany Hayden famously became involuntarily unbanked due to a personal relationship issue, which I covered in a Cointelegraph article years ago. So is your life really that resistant to financial censorship? Well, let's find out. Not sure if it's exactly my audience, but some people listening to this might be all, well, I got a bunch of gold coins, I got some gold bullion, I got some ammo here, I got a bunch of stuff, I got everything I need, I'm a hardcore prepper, I cannot be financially censored. And yeah, kind of, I guess. No one can take your stuff from you. Now, the problem, though, is the actual transmission and trade of precious metals is a little easier to censor. First off, it's very geographically dependent. You don't have your gold somewhere else in the world, or if you do, then it's not really your gold. You have title to it, but someone could just confiscate it and you're over. You have to keep it on you. And so if people know where you are, they can go take it from you. And also, actually exchanging it for goods and services depends on your physical presence. You have to go up to people and just say, here we go, here's this gold coin. This is how much it weighs. This is how much the value is. Let's barter for Okay, there we go. I, I do my exchange. Now, of course, how much of modern life is done from in-person transactions only? Very little of it, actually, and there are some people that still live that way. In fact, there's people who live completely off the land and barely ever trade for anything. They're almost entirely self-sufficient, but there's like five people like that. It's very rare. In modern society, you have to trade with other people, and mostly people just will not take your gold for goods and services, at least not with any kind of efficiency. So yeah, it's possible to be a precious metal prepper bug and be censorship resistant. But it's pretty unlikely that most people like that have their whole trade routes figured out and they just have gold on them and they know exactly who will take it. They know how to efficiently trade. They know how to clip off small pieces of it in very precise, measurable ways and go trade with it for goods and services so that if their bank account or their paper money or whatever gets completely ruined for them, uh, they don't care. They go about their daily business. It's going to be a hardship, more so than someone who, say, lives off of crypto. First, we have to define what financial censorship really is. And in my view, there's four main ways you could be censored financially. The first one is, of course, the most obvious. It's theft or expropriation, however you want to call it. Basically, someone takes your stuff. Literally, you have it. They take it, it's gone. Of course, this is easy to conceptualize when you're thinking, oh, I have a stash of gold coins or a big stack of money under the mattress or whatever it is that someone gets into your house and then takes it from you and wow, it's all gone. But the more common version of this is, of course, in the digital age is digital removal. Like you have a bunch of money in the bank and whoop, it's gone one day because someone said it's time to take it. And so obviously hackers and thieves and things like that are an actual issue, but here we're talking about the bank itself taking it from you, the government causing that to happen, etc. If you have your money or the majority of your resources 
in something that someone can just decide, you know what, I don't like the guy, I'm going to take it all from them. You're not very censorship resistant now, are you? Cyprus famously stole money from its citizens, and even countries such as Canada have floated similar ideas. Of recent infamy is a U.S. gym owner who defied lockdown orders only to have his money stolen from his account. The second way you could be censored is from transaction blocking, meaning you want to make a transaction, you want to send or move your money around, and that isn't possible. So let's just say you have a whole bunch of gold in your house, okay, and no one knows where it is, they can't take it from you, so you're immune to the first form of financial censorship, but now the second hits you, where what can you do with it? How can you actually spend it? Well, you need to go take it to an institution or something, and then then they will give you permission to spend it elsewhere. They'll give you credit, you get a card, whatever it is, but you can't really do it without it. That's transaction censorship, or, you know, Maybe you have all your money in an account that doesn't block you, but whatever app or processor you use just won't let you send it. That's what we're talking about. And then you can have all the money in the world and who cares as long as you can't actually use it. Remember, feasibility matters here too. If you can't move your money without exorbitant fees or waiting many hours or days, then even if you don't literally need a centralized third party, practically you do third kind is payment blocking. Now, it's very similar to transaction blocking, except with one key difference, right? With transaction blocking, you can't move your money. No one will process it for you. You can't actually get it sent anywhere. It's just stuck in one spot. Payment blocking is a little different in where you can send it anywhere you want, any account you got here, there, anywhere, to any person, but you try to actually spend it in some sort of a merchant, in some sort of an exchange, and you can't for whatever reason. They won't let it. They refuse. Oh, we don't accept from those addresses, from those accounts. Oh, we're going to block all payments originating from this. It's basically the same thing, but the hair split is very necessary because there's a lot of cases where you could use a decentralized network like a cryptocurrency, send it all over the place, and it's fine, but for whatever reason, you can't end up spending it. And then you have money. You can send it to people, but then you're going to have to sort of work out some kind of a deal where someone else buys things for you because you can't spend them yourselves. And then it's like a practical restriction on your spending ability, not just a literal one. A great example of this is social media app Parler being shut out of using Amazon web hosting. It's not that they couldn't send their money. It's that where they wanted to spend it didn't want to do business with them. And number four, which is a little sneakier, is value theft slash inflation. So let's just say you have a ton of money. No one's going to take it from you. No restrictions to how you can send it around. No restrictions to who will accept it for payment. But the government decides or the issuer decides they're going to print a whole bunch more of this or remove parts of the supply or whatever they do that makes what you have worth less. Even though they're not taking those units from you, even though you still have that, that little stash, they're taking the actual value purchasing power messing with that. So you can have a completely censorship resistant financial system, but if the supply is able to be tampered with, it doesn't really matter because then you just work as hard as you want, get this as much as you want. If someone doesn't like you or the majority of holders or whatever, they can just start inflating the money and then all of a sudden, hey, you're kind of out of luck. Even the US dollar, considered one of the best and biggest fiat currencies, has lost a significant portion of its value over the years. Others haven't fared as well. This works out the same as direct theft, only in a more roundabout and gradual way. 
So let's go down the checklist. Generally speaking, we're talking about cryptocurrencies here because of all the problems with other currencies, whether it's government currencies that are liable to be inflated or whether it's precious metals, which just are not something that people spend these days. They're so, they're so limited in terms of how you can use them in commerce today without a centralized third party, etc. So let's just talk about crypto. You want something that has inflation control, that has a fixed emission schedule, right? As in, you know how frequently the money is going to be kicked out. Because even in the case of a higher inflation project, you want to be able to know exactly how much value this is going to store. Of course, you'd want something with almost no inflation, very low inflation, so it just it keeps its value a whole lot better. But even if it's not super optimal, you just want to have a something that's fixed so that it can't be changed later on, it can't be manipulated. And, and this one's a lot trickier, a decentralized supply. You want it to where a lot of different people hold the supply. It's not like a couple actors just have a whole bunch of it because that's kind of the same thing as having an inflation rate that's open to reinterpretation, right? They can change because let's just say a couple whales have a giant chunk of the supply and they decide, you know what? We're going to price manipulate. We're going to crash the whole price and they make big buys and sells and things and they manipulate the value. And that has the practical effect of devaluing the currency, even though it's not being inflated by whale games and stuff by the supply being controlled by a centralized entity or too few players that can be a big problem bitcoin is thought to have established the gold standard for this with a fixed ultimate supply and decreasing inflation as well as a decentralized distribution mechanism spread out over many years some coins like ripple and nano have everything created at the beginning with no guarantees it'll ever be distributed well any project that's centralized around a single person or group could, of course, be modified to change the supply. Yeah, this is one of those cases where a lot of people are going to get salty, depending on what I say. Um, I already mentioned too many names in terms of, you know, Ripple and Nano. But, hey, if you're listening to the audio-only version, which you are, if you hear this, why not? Why don't I do a little bit of fun for you? Um, obviously, Ripple and Stellar, by extension, have entirely pre-mined supplies where the entire supply just, they created it and they control the whole thing. And I have not kept up on Stellar too much, but Ripple definitely has landed in hot water for holding a big bunch of their tokens and just selling them every once in a while as revenue for the company. That's not something you'd ever want to rely on as a decentralized money to be censorship resistant. A big pile of XRP for some reason, <laughs> you decide to start trading with it, buying coffee with your XRP or whatever. And then at any point, the Ripple company could just get sued to oblivion as it's kind of happening. Or they could just decide, you know what? We're going to sell all the supply. We're getting out of this. We're going to, or they say, we're going to sunset using the token. Even though the network technically would still be up, the token would technically still be in circulation. There might be some validator nodes still running it. It's basically going to go to zero. Just boom, right like that. A lot of coins, if they lost their development team, would have a similar shock, but not the same, right? You had, you've had founder exit before. No one really knows or cares about Dogecoin's founder. I mean, it's still there. It can still be pumped. People can still use it. DAG or directed acyclic graph based coins such as IOTA and Nano also have this problem, as I mentioned, with the entire supply being created at the beginning and therefore kind of in the hands of a centralized party. Now, from my understanding, that's a little bit more of like a requirement of the system there, but it still ends up being, okay, you got the entire supply right here. 
And whoever has those tokens is beholden to whoever has more of those tokens insofar as you can go pump or dump and mess with the entire value. Now, of course, they aren't, right? They have been sold around. I'm not as familiar with IOTA's distribution model, but I do know that Nano had a CAPTCHA-based faucet, still might, I believe still does, to distribute the coins because there's no real good automated method of doing so. And I personally don't believe in that at all. I don't believe that that's something that I would put my trusted money behind. Um, you can, of course, look at the, I would say the blockchain, but it's the block lattice. You can look at the block lattice and see who has what kind of money, where are the big whales, and I did check and there are some big whales. But the real thing is you cannot really trust who's behind each and every one of those accounts if one person got the whole thing. So imagine this, right? You create, as the founders of the coin, the entire supply. You have it all. But no one's going to go use this thing that you have everything of. So, okay, well, I'm going to do a little CAPTCHA thing where people can solve little pu online puzzles that are robot-resistant or whatever, and then, then they, that's how they get the coins. Um, imagine if you just take someone from a developing country who has lower income and just say, look, I'll pay you a bunch of money, not a bunch, but you know, by their standards, a bunch. I'll pay you to just capture a farm on my behalf. And then, all right, sure. And then you just control more and more addresses and accounts. And then you just pay more and more people to farm this. Of course, if it doesn't have value yet, you don't have any kind of an incentive to do that unless you just want to say, look, the coin's getting distributed. This is great. It's so decentralized. And you start pumping it. And then people are going to buy into select little bits of this. But you still manage to secretly hold a giant chunk of the supply that no one can kind of do anything about. And it could have really happened because you have a finite amount of the coins that are just there. And you hold on to the majority of them. Even though you say you distributed them, you distribute them back to yourself to a certain amount and then actually just let people do the CAPTCHA that way. Okay, then a bunch of people have the coins, they start trading it, the price goes up, and then you have this big hoard that you can use to just dump the price anytime you want. So I would not really trust that either. The elephant in the room, of course, is proof of stake because in pure proof of stake, you have to get the coins from people that already have them. So if you start with one coin and then distribute the supply to people who are staking, that one coin person gets all the money, period. And it's only, well, you give it to other people, then they get it, they can also stake, and then you sell it and other people buy it and they can stake it, it disseminates that way. But just the fact that you need permission from current holders in order to get any. That's something that proof of work doesn't really have. And I understand in practical senses, the distribution models are a little less idealistic, but at least with proof of work, anyone in the whole world can just run the code. They can just run a miner, whether on their computer or they built specialized hardware or hack something together. No matter how effective it might be later in the mining stage, anyone out there can run mining equipment and get the coin without permission of current holders, which is why generally speaking, I would say proof of work coins are the best in this regard if you're really trying to worry about um, decentralized supply. Now, it doesn't always work that way, of course. There's a lot of easy ways that you can get a supply distributed in a non-proof of work coin all over the place. It's just a little bit less guaranteed to happen. And let's be honest, a lot of proof of work coins do kind of have centralized supplies. Like what was it? The majority of Litecoin supply was moved by a single actor, not 
too long ago, a couple of years ago. It can definitely turn out this way. And if you are a company that creates mining equipment, mines them on your own, but then sells the older equipment, then keeps on innovating, getting newer, newer mining equipment, you can end up with a big chunk of the supply and unfairly large, maybe. There's ways you can get around that too, right? And nothing at all is perfect. Of course, something like Bitcoin is what people usually point to because people didn't figure out the game at the time. It was just, all right, these are this is new. These are kind of worthless coins. Obviously, the founder mined a whole lot of them, and hopefully, thankfully, they're no longer accessible. But it just in the early days, there was very few people. So by the time anyone thought, oh, this has value, then they were kind of late to the game. And so it's kind of distributed around. Then, of course, you take all the, the forks of Bitcoin, which literally just copied the supply from where it was. And then now the same people have all the money again and again and again, as opposed to starting fresh. So something to think about, right? There's nothing that's perfect, but this is one reason why you need to have a transparent blockchain to really know beyond a shadow of a doubt. Of course, privacy is a fantastic thing, and there are just some things that are harder to obfuscate at the end of the day that make it that if you're super privacy conscious, if you don't want to take any chances at all, you want to use something with an opaque blockchain that no one can just see all the money movements around. The problem with that, unfortunately, you can't really get around it, is there could always be some kind of an inflation bug, something out there, and someone could have you know, a bunch more coins than you think. Or even if there's no inflation bug, you can't see who has what, which is you know kind of the point, right? And an unfortunate side effect of all that is some person could really control almost all the supply or you know, a majority of it. And you just, you don't know that. So you buy in thinking, oh, this is going to be great money to use. And then that person just keeps on dumping and you don't get to see, oh, a whale moved a big thing onto Coinbase or whatever. You get, you don't get to see any of that. So you're just caught at unawares when the price keeps going down and down and down and down as that one person keeps selling. And then you just don't know when it, when it happened. The supply could become completely in the control of one entity that way, or just, you know, ruined and you would be none the wiser so something to think about as well and the second thing you want of course is you want to control your own private keys of course there's a bunch of ways to do this but basically you want to keep your money in a wallet that has one of those 12 word recovery phrases obviously there's other backup forms but that's like the big newbie friendly standard right now and basically you want to have complete control over your money to where whatever app you're using it in can't actually take it from you, right? The people that run the app don't actually hold custody of those funds. It's you with your private keys that you have on your device. And probably the only way to really know this for sure is if the wallet is open source, meaning the code is publicly verifiable by anyone. Now you don't have to be a coder yourself. You don't have to actually know how to interpret it. Although of course that makes you have a little extra peace of mind, but just the fact that it's there and anyone can see it, you can see if there's any kind of weird backdoors there. It says that you control your money, but they actually have a way of siphoning it away from you. If it's open source, that's not going to be a problem. And of course, it helps to have like a backup second option in your mind that you can use in case something happens. So the first one. So let's just say your favorite wallet gets, say, taken down from the app store or they get compromised. They do some, something happens like that. Sure, you didn't lose your money. You still have it. You still have it backed up. You can put it anywhere else, but like if you don't have a second option kind of on deck ready, then it's going to be a hardship for you. You should know another service that works where you can just plug it in and then you can still send and receive and it works fine. Of course, whatever light wallet client you use is going to rely on some kind of an external full node 
to broadcast your transactions everywhere. And if you don't like that, or if you start to run out of options with that, at some point you might just have to run your own node, either to point the light wallet to, or just to do all transactions. So basically with that, you go straight to the source and build the open source client that runs everything. And then you communicate with the rest of the network. And then you get to send stuff directly. And then you get to use up all your hard drive space on syncing the whole blockchain. Unless you're a hobbyist on this stuff, it's probably not worth doing this. But if you start to not be comfortable with the various light wallet client solutions out there, this might be the only thing for you to do. And finally, and probably more rarely, you want a place you can spend this anonymously keyword being anonymously because let's say you have control over all your finances let's just say you can send and receive them anywhere you've got your wallets you got a full node you got everything set up but what can you actually do with it of course you can go spend it someplace but what if every place wants some sort of a kyc what if some place wants to know oh i want your id i want some identifying info i want to prove where the funds came from and that's starting to happen at an increasing rate with a lot of payment processors is they're starting to want to know where the money came from and other identifying info and of course that's a censorship angle if they don't like you then they identify you and then you can't spend it at those places it's too bad so basically you want to know ahead of time where can i spend this if everything really goes off what kind of businesses do i know that just don't care who you are they'll just give you the product if you give them the money and then it, that's just fine keep a nice list of that including some off the books friends who do goods and services you could trade with and then no one has to know about and that's how you know you can really be censorship resistant bit refill for which i always leave a link in my videos and podcasts is pretty great for this also look up how to live on crypto on odyssey and youtube and you'll see lots of examples on how to spend it many of which may be done without id requirements so that wraps it up have you ever experienced financial censorship i hope you haven't but if you have i would love to have you volunteer your comments down below or wherever else tag me on social media whatever send me a little transaction with a little message however it works out let me know because i'd like to know some more real world examples that aren't just, oh, I heard a headline in the news, some friend of a friend of a friend this, but it's just like, oh yeah, this happened to me. I got blocked from this. So let me know and I will see you guys next time. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, subscribe so you don't miss an episode and donate to support the show by going to my Cointree page. That's cointr.ee slash the desert links and leave a message with your donation. Check out the show's sponsors. Live on crypto with BitRefill. Buy absolutely anything with crypto with Shop and Bit. Avoid content censorship with Odyssey. Protect your privacy online with NordVPN. Get paid to search with PreSearch. All links are in the show notes.